This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of the Burning Unit at Vanderbilt Regional Medical Center. The topic that we're going to talk about today is the role of pain in the intensive care unit. And this will be somewhat of a generalized uh, conversation as this and uh, the idea of sedation and, and delirium have all become very intermingled uh, in the intensive care unit. We've learned uh, from uh, studies uh, that which we've quoted in the previous podcast, such as the ABC trial that uh, Wes Ely and his colleagues published recently in Lancet, that the uh, effect of sedation and delirium in the intensive care unit can have profound implications in the role of weaning people from mechanical ventilators as well as uh, prolonged, uh, as well as a uh, 60-day survival. But what I want to focus on is more of a generalized discussion of pain and how we should manage it, particularly in a surgical ICU, and being uh, mindful that uh, where I spend the majority of my time is managing pain in a burn intensive care unit. Albert Schweitzer said, and I quote, We must all die, but that I can save him from days of torture. That is what I feel is my great and ever new privilege. Pain is more terrible, Lord of mankind, than even death itself. And I think Albert Schweitzer really put this into focus, that people really do fear pain more than they do death. The problem with pain is the obvious. Pain hurts, surgery hurts, fracture hurts, and procedures hurt. And ICUs are very scary patients for patients. ICUs are very scary places for patients. And this would seem relatively obvious. But those of us who live in these environments, I think, often get kind of often become saturated that the intensive care unit, which may be a very scary place for a family member or a patient, is where we spend the vast majority of our time, and certainly where we work. Remember the first time you walked in the intensive care unit, you saw patients laying there within the tracheal tubes and the sound of ventilators and alarms. Um, keep in mind that that is the environment that many of our patients uh, and certainly uh, their families are walking into every single day. Uh, the other issues of pain, we could go back to uh, some of the issues with uh, myocardial ischemia. There's been a significant amount of literature produced about the role of the neuroendocrine response to stress uh, and, and the result of myocardial ischemia, and, and, and that's where the role of things like beta blockade uh, in patients who are at uh, risk uh, producing a, a, um, a reduction in risk by the implementation of beta blockers. And that's going to be a topic that we're going to talk about in the future. Um, other issues with uh, poor pain control is just outright humane. Uh, inhumane, and uh, we can certainly do as much as we can. It's it's always kind of alarming to me that when I walk out into a waiting room in the morning, you know, like two or three o'clock in the morning, to introduce myself to a family who uh, has had a patient flown in here for major life-threatening burns. It seems often that the first question that people want to know is, are they in pain? Not whether they're going to live or they're going to die. The other issues with poor, uh, we'd call it pain control, but poor sedation is the issues of extubation from the mechanical ventilator. Now, this is becoming a topic that's in rather significant flux because what we are learning is that by giving patients spontaneous awake trials and spontaneous breathing trials, we're able to get them off mechanical ventilators in a shorter period of time. But if a patient is inappropriately sedated and they, they inadvertently extubate from the ventilator, that could result in, in a, um, a real, certainly chaos in the intensive period, if not just outright a catastrophe if you lose the airway and the patient 
uh, would would arrest from that. This is clearly a threat in, in burn patients where the patient may have not just respiratory failure or smoke inhalation or pneumonia or ARDS, but the patient may have mechanical obstruction of their airway from soft tissue swelling or edema from the actual thermal injury. So they can have swelling of their tongue or their tracheobronchial mucosa, and if that tube comes out, uh, the results can just be absolutely horrible. The other issue with uh, poor pain control is the problem of poor oral intake. Uh, patients can have poor participation with therapy and rehabilitation. One of the outcome variables that we look for as success in somebody who does burns is, you know, we think of the obvious live, die, get off the ventilator, but we want a patients to be able to participate in their therapy and regain the function uh, that they were prior to their state of injury. We've talked about in previous talks that catabolism or the breakdown of protein is a significant problem in the intensive care unit. And as people catabolize or break down muscles and protein, their ability to do simple activities of daily living, walking, ambulating, uh, getting out of bed to do transfers, or just getting off a mechanical ventilator is impaired. We in ICUs put a significant amount of effort on the role of nutrition. Are they getting enough protein? Are they getting enough carbohydrate? Are they getting enough uh, uh, fat? Are they on hyperalimentation, uh, TPN, or are they getting enteral feeds? We know that if we do things well, we're only going to slow that breakdown of protein down by maybe 50%. One of the things that certainly helps in the um, slowing down of catabolism and the increasing of anabolism is exercise. Uh, and people cannot do their exercise or their therapy if they are in excruciating amount of pain. The other issue with poor pain control is behavior problems and social problems. Not only in the ICU that people can be compatible, uh, but certainly when you're taking care of outpatients uh, who have acute pain from uh, fractures um, uh, and uh, they're at home and they're not getting adequate pain control, this will create problems um, not only behaviorally but socially, uh, not just in and around their loved ones, but also uh, with interactions with the healthcare team uh, in the clinic. What we try to teach our, our residents, not only just the intense care unit, but also on the floor in the clinic, is that there are really two types of pain. There's procedural pain and there's non-procedural pain. Let's start first with the non-procedural pain. If you are a burn victim and you have burns over your arms and your legs, say, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30% of your total body surface area, or you have a leg fracture or pelvis fracture, that is a condition that you have 24 hours a day. And that is your non-procedural pain. That doesn't go away. It doesn't come every four to six hours just when your lower tab is available. It's there the entire 24 hours of the day. Now, procedural pain... Uh, would seem perhaps inherently obvious to us. Well, that would be when you get a chest tube or a central line or somebody does an LP or somebody puts an interventricular catheter in to measure, you know, ICP pressures. No. Yes, those are procedures, and yes, those procedures are painful. But to a patient, the procedure could, procedural pain could also be something like a bath, getting the linens changed, getting out of bed to the chair, maybe doing some physical or occupational therapy, and that's their procedural pain. And what we need to do is think about these two types of elements of pain, procedural pain and non-procedural pain, and think about the approach that we use with medications to cover both of those pains. Perhaps we need to use two different types of medications. Both could be narcotics. One might be longer acting and the other might be shorter acting. But we have to, uh, we have to adjust our pain control regimen to address both the procedural pain as well as the non-procedural pain. Now, there is a difference between pain and anxiety, and, and anxiety is something that we certainly need to address. And what we tell patients is, is uh, I've heard people say this, and it drives me kind of crazy, is that 
uh, physicians will go out and say, well, we're going to put him into a coma. What, what the well-intended physician is trying to say and or to assure the family is that, you know, though you're very concerned about your loved one having these uh, horrible injuries and being in excruciating pain, don't worry because we're going to put your mother or your husband or whatever into a coma. Uh, coma is a negative connotation, and a lot of times and, and, and people get very anxious when they hear that, and it's misinterpreted. And I don't know that our language is any better. It's been my experience that what we'll tell patients is that we will try to assist in putting them into a mild general anesthesia. Because remember, I, I am by no means an anesthesiologist, and I probably could even spell anesthesiologist, but many of my friends are anesthesiologists and some of my partners as well. And what we do in anesthesia, or what they do in anesthesia, is you try to provide analgesia, or the taking away of pain, uh, amnesia, which we could also say is sedation, and, and the drugs that cause amnesia are the same drugs that we use for sedation, and they also use neuromuscular paralysis. Now, that, that third element, neuromuscular paralysis, is not something we need to do frequently in the ICU. In fact, we really only need to do that the minority of the time. But certainly in burn patients, the benefit of giving people analgesia and anxiety-slash-amnesia-producing drugs is... Um, um, uh, beneficial. Burn patients have increased levels of anxiety, especially related to treatment and outcome, and these levels will increase with time. Anticipation of pain related to treatments that occur daily or more often can increase a patient's perception of pain. They get this anticipatory anxiety, and as they get this anticipatory anxiety, they have an increased perception of pain. Now, the patient's perception of pain is that patient's reality. It does no good to sit there and say, now, you're not really hurting. If the patient is having a perception or an anticipation of pain, we have to deal with that because if the patient recoils, is combative, not cooperative, that doesn't make our job or the nurse's job any easy, any easier. I'm sorry. This anticipatory anxiety-related treatments leads to increased pain, which in turn leads to increased anxiety. One is left with a positive feedback cycle. That's a physiological term is that the patient begins to kind of amplify this, this cycle from anxiety to increased perceived pain. As they have an increased perceived pain, it increases their anxiety. And much like a dog chasing their tail, you get the positive feedback cycle. So what we would like to do is, is try to provide a balanced approach. And the balanced approach um, uh, really uses several drugs. And then when we're talking about pain and pain control, we want to use typical analgesics. And then the most common analgesics we use are the narcotics, fentanyl, morphine, uh, remifentanil. Uh, there are other non-narcotic analgesics that we use, uh, Motrin, Keterlac, aspirin. Um, uh, Anxiety-reducing uh, agents, typically these are the benzodiazepines, uh, midazolam, also known as Versed, diazepam or Valium, um, uh, lorazepam or Ativan. Uh, those are the drugs that are commonly used to treat anxiety. They also are very helpful in that they cause an anti-grade amnesia. So if I give somebody uh, Valium or Versed prior to a procedure, even though they may be awake and be interactive with you or talking, they will often have amnesia of that event. Um, and that's why the benzos are also very helpful. And then you get into drugs like agitation and, and Haldol is typically used for treatment of agitation. Uh, we'll talk about that in a different kind of uh, talk. Muscle relaxation, uh, and these are your neuromuscular uh, uh, agents such as succinylcholine or uh, uh, vecuronium. Pain, uh, there was a big move years ago by the Joint Commission, and uh, it was really trying to make people more aware that 
pain was the fifth vital sign. Uh, and since then, I think people are certainly more aware of it or they're just documenting more of it. And there's what I call the wiggle factor. There are medications that we are capable of giving that reduce a patient's ability to wiggle, but that does nothing in regards to uh, their pain. The most common mistake that you'll see made in this regard is the use of propofol. Propofol is, is a uh, induction type agent and it will keep people from wiggling, uh, but it has no analgesic properties. So for somebody to reduce um, a hip or relocate a fracture or put a chest tube in under propofol, all things that I've seen done uh, without the use of analgesics is not appropriate use of the medication and it does not provide the patient with uh, uh, any pain relief. The other uh, mistake that uh, individuals would make is, and, and we actually had this recently, um, uh, one of our helicopters went to get a patient and one of the flight nurses um, had a message relayed to me, um, but uh, having somebody getting intubated and then taking away, quote, the wiggle factor with use of paralytics. Paralytics will uh, even worse uh, anti-wiggle drug than, say, propofol because the patient won't be wiggling, but they can be awake and have consciousness and memory plus be feeling the pain of what you're doing. Um, we talk about whether you want to give the medications through IV bolus uh, versus an infusion, as well as uh, in, in some of the more less acute situations, the use of patient-controlled analgesia. Well, how do we determine the optimal level of sedation is something that's uh, um, been de debated, and uh, now there are uh, increasing uh, scores that we use to, uh, uh, you know, Ramsey scores, RAS scores, to try to uh, determine where we want a patient's uh, level of sedation, and we're not going to get into those, but, you know, really your optimal level of sedation is, is do you want too much or too little? And in the cases of too little, patients will have recall, they have anxiety, they have this negative psychological effect of a pain response. And the ideas of too much level sedation, you have increased costs, increased length of stay in the intensive care unit, uh, increased ventilator days, increased rate of pneumonias. And this is getting a lot of attention because of the notion that with increased uh, rate of pneumonias uh, being a nosocomial infection, this is a quality metric that's being pushed back by some of the payers or Medicare. And if the payers Medicare aren't going to pay for the nosocomial pneumonia, then we say, well, we need to look at all factors. And one of those is the spontaneous awake and spontaneous breathing trials, which we mentioned in one of the last podcasts. Ideally, and, and being an ideal state is often hard to obtain, but the sedation be titrated to the patient's individual requirements. What's happening at that point in time? You know, if a patient is burned on 70% of their body, their face is markedly swollen, There's that patient is going to have an airway in, they're in crisis, uh, they're having an excruciating amount of pain. That's not somebody you want to be bringing up um, and uh, having them wake and following commands. On the contrary, though, if you have somebody who is fresh postoperatively, they, they're sucking up some fluids, uh, but they are awake to follow commands, you can certainly lighten their level of sedation and work aggressively to get them off of the mechanical ventilator. Um, the idea of in cardiac surgery patients, light versus heavy, there's really no difference in postoperative myocardial ischemia, and that research was done back in the 90s, and, and it's amazing to me how quickly uh, cardiac surgery patients can go from a, a, a situation of being in on cardiopulmonary bypass, get rapidly moved to the cardiac surgical unit, and then that evening getting extubated, and the next morning they're eating a tray. It's, it's sort of a miraculous. Majority of ICUs do not use any measure of monitoring level sedations, and I think there's a, certainly a very aggressive push to change that 
that uh, around the United States, that somebody is using some sort of objective scoring system, being in a RAS score, a Ramsey sedation score, so that we can say, you know, somebody is a, a, a minus one and, and be able to, for physicians to say, I want the patient at this level of sedation, and for the nurses to be able to try to get a patient to that target. Um, any sedation score that you use it needs to be used regularly in the intensive uh, uh, care unit, um, and you really can't contain a separate assessment for pain. The problems are failure to distinguish between loss of conscious and abnormal mental status. Short-term agents used in ICUs, um, uh, mostly propofol. Uh, propofol uh, is a, a, a very slick drug uh, that certainly will require sedation. One of the things that you need to keep in mind is that sedation, uh, propofol is not a wonderful drug to be using in somebody who's hypovolemic or somebody who has uh, any problems with myocardial depression. Propofol is a profound um, uh, negative inotrope. Uh, and a, a vasodilator. So one of the things that's always kind of interesting is you'll see somebody on propofol, they're sucking at fluids, people are giving them fluid bolses. Well, it may, it may not be particularly that they have a acute state of hypovolemia, but maybe we need to reevaluate their propofol uh, dose, and, and maybe we need to either back it off or look at a different agent. Dexamethamidate, um, dexamethamidate, I'm sorry, is a, um, a very slick drug, alpha-2 uh, agent. Um that um, when initiated can actually cause problems with some hypotension and bradycardia. Uh, it actually does have some analgesic properties. It is a very short-acting agent. There's a, an increasing body of literature on this. It is outrageously expensive at this point in time, much like propofol was in years past, uh, but it is a very good agent, and uh, there's literature to suggest that uh, with more... Uh, um, liberal use of dexmetomidine, uh, we could probably get people off of mechanical ventilators more quickly and perhaps even have less problems with long-term cases of um, um, delirium. Atomidate. Atomidate is a drug that's commonly used in rapid sequence intubation. Um, it's not used commonly uh, as a ICU infusion agent. And the, and the reason why that is is that studies were done, uh, I believe in Glasgow years ago, that showed that the use of Atomidate, particularly in infusions, uh, cause uh, adrenal uh, suppression. And certainly uh, anybody who's been keeping their eyes and ears open in ICUs know that uh, uh, suppression of the adrenal access or a relative adrenal insufficiency is a very common problem. I'm not sure if it's a problem, but clearly a common discussion we have in the ICUs daily now. Uh, it is There is literature that clearly shows that uh, Atomidate uses a bolus, will suppress uh, a cortisone stimulation for about 48 hours post-use. Uh, and so that's clearly one of the problems with Atomidate. Um, some of the problems that you may see with anxiolytics um, is that they will blunt the um, uh, autonomic response. And that may be what's maintaining the patient's blood pressure. Uh, all of a sudden, you take away their, uh, their hypovolemic and you take away their autonomic response. That's causing vasoconstriction uh, and the patient's down on their volume. Uh, you can get an associated hypotension. Now let's talk about how we marry some of these drugs together on the same patient. Um, as far as drugs such as morphine and fentanyl, they're given for analgesia, pain relief, and they will provide only a base of sedation. So if you want to actually sedate somebody, these are not the drugs you reach for, but they will quiet a patient, uh, both uh, morphine and fentanyl. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind with morphine versus fentanyl, morphine, uh, anybody who's ever used it, is are certainly aware that it, it is associated with a hypotension uh, when you bolus it. This is secondary to histamine release. We see less histamine release with the use of fentanyl. So for that reason, it is certainly my practice and, and the practice of others that if you have a, a patient who has a questionable volume status, fentanyl may be um, a um, 
uh, perhaps safer drug under that circumstances. Now, opiates need to be supplemented drugs um, to provide uh, sedation and anxiolysis. And, and what are we supplementing with? Benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines, if you remember from your basic pharmacology, uh, work through the GABA receptors. Big key point here, benzodiazepines have no analgesic properties. Saying that again, benzodiazepines have no analgesic properties. If somebody is having acute pain, and their pain is because they've got a chest tube or something like that, certainly giving in something like Versed will quiet them, but it will not take away their pain. Use the right drug for the right problem. Um, they have been shown to decrease narcotic requirements in the ICU, and that's secondary to their sedative effects. Some of the things that you'll see with benzodiazepines, um, you'll see sedation, hypnosis, amnesia, relaxation. Certainly, we'll see respiratory depression and cardiovascular depression, and you can see an induction of tolerance. Just some basic uh, properties of the benzodiazepines. Which benzodiazepine to use in the ICU? Lorazepam um, has a... a, a uh, effect for about 14 hours. Then we're talking about effect versus half-life. Uh, that's a separate pharmacology talk. Midazolam has a uh, half-life about two to three hours. Which is interesting is the Society for Critical Care Medicine and their guidelines a few years ago uh, really didn't recommend midazolam for a protracted period of time in the ICU. And the reason for that is midazolam will actually have a metabolite that will accumulate and has biological effectiveness. So. Um, Midazolam is a reasonably short-acting drug when used in, 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 in short infusions, but when it's used in a protracted period of time, you'll see an increased effect. Diazepam uh, has an um, uh, effect for about 20 to 40 hours. I remember there was a fellow, one of my faculty in anesthesia, telling me that um, basically it's your uh, aging years is how many hours. So if you're 40 years old, you're going to see it hanging around for about 40 hours. Uh, lorazepam for sedation particularly about 48 hours, and, and again, uh, Valium could, could last up to uh, 72 hours or, or longer, as we've mentioned. What are some of the uh, pharmacological effects of uh, propofol? The most obvious is that of sedation. It does cause some amnesia. It has some uh, anticonvulsant effects as well as muscle relaxation, but not neuromuscular paralysis. Um, it does cause respiratory depression and cardiovascular depression. Um, I've heard an anesthesiologist say that the one drug that is the most uh, myocardiodepressant in the operating room is propofol. So when you see somebody who has you know, borderline cardiac function or they're hypovolemic, propofol doesn't sound like a really great drug to be using. Propofol is also used for the treatment of DTs. It's opiate detoxification. So the problems it does create an acidosis in kids. Um, it used to be that we had a lot more problems with contamination of propofol, but uh, um, it's my understanding that they've reformulated some of the carriers and therefore that's not as much of a risk as it has been in the past. Now, when we talk about the idea of agitation, we have all have a picture in our mind of what an agitated patient looks like. They're sitting there typically, they're, they're hollering or screaming or, or trying to yank their IVs or what have you. Um, and, you know, how, how do we approach that? Now, again, you know, we have to identify this as a patient who's agitated, which seems inherently obvious to us when we're talking about it. But, again, we have pain control, sedation, and control of agitation. And, and we would use a different tool for each of those dif different problems. Uh, the problem with uh, treating agitation is too much versus too little. Uh, it'll certainly cloud the mental function. You need to calm the patient. Um, you know, physical restraints versus the, the idea of chemical restraints. Uh, and you really need to control some of the autonomic and hyper motor hyperactivity the patient has before they actually hurt themselves or a member of the staff. 
Um, it's really inappropriate to allow a patient to remain in a continued agitated state. And you see this frequently in patients uh, uh, who are, are perhaps even mentally ill or, or uh, severe traumatic brain injury. Um, and uh, certainly on those patients, we'll consult with our uh, colleagues in anesthesia to provide you know, a happy medium to keep the patient from uh, this uh, state of uh, chronic agitation. Uh, propofol, um, you know, should we be using propofol for the treatment of agitation? Well, no, it's just too short of an acting drug. It, uh, usually the precipitating event is usually not transient, as we've mentioned. You know, um, so, you know, you can't keep somebody on a propofol infusion. The cost of long-term use of propofol used to be really kind of prohibitive uh, now that we have uh, generics, uh, that, that is, is, is not as expensive as it used to be. Um, many uh, encephalopathies uh, that a patient may be experiencing that's causing the agitation really is days and days to recover. Um, and then, you know, what are, what are some of the roles of some of the neuroleptics? Um, and the neuroleptic drugs, uh, probably the most... Uh, most recognized of the neuroleptics drugs is Haldol, and it's widely used for delirium. It has a distribution half-life of about 11 minutes and an elimination half-life of about 10 to 19 hours. It is metabolized by the liver and has a flat dose response curve beyond 10 milligrams uh, per dose. What is a flat dose response curve for those of you who slept through pharmacology and don't remember things like pharmacodynamics? Um... A flat dose response curve really is, is that, you know, you get to a point of, you know, looking at it from a financial model, you get a point of diminishing returns is that once you start increasing the doses of, of Haldol, you're probably not going to see an increasing uh, response. And that's why the dose response, dose, increasing dose, do I see an increasing response? That would be a linear type, you know, kind of angled at a 45 degree dose response curve. But once it starts to flatten off, that's where you see a flattening or a flat dose response curve. People have used Haldol infusions in the past. I have used those myself uh, years ago when we had less uh, pharmacological choices. Uh, one of the most common things that you see uh, with uh, Haldol and some of the neuroleptics is the presentation of extrapyramidal symptoms. You can also see neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is a, um, a great board question. Uh, typically, patients will have uh, uh, high temperatures and myoglobinuria. Uh, you could see hypotension uh, with some of the neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Uh, prolonged QT interval is a contraindication for the use of neuroleptic malignant syndromes. And we have talked before about what is a, a prolonged QT and a, cor a, prolonged, a corrected uh, QT interval. And typically, we don't like to use it when we have a corrected QT interval greater than 440. Now, my anesthesia colleagues will leave notes in the chart and say, no, that, it's okay. You can use Haldol in this particular patient. We've taken the EKG and somebody's got a corrected QT interval of 445 or 450. And even though we've got that note there, we'll say, no, no thanks. Because, you know, when the patient has torsades at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm not trying to be tacky or mean, but they're not going to call my anesthesia colleagues. They're going to call me and my house staff. And uh, I think it would be a difficult position to defend uh, using Haldol in somebody who has a documented um, uh, uh, prolonged QT interval. Uh, Presidex is a dexmetomidine, a uh, really cool drug. Um, I like to use it. I think the patients benefit from it. It is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. Um, it induces sedation and inhibits a stress response. It will compete with propofol and benzodiazepines. You will see less respiratory depression with uh, uh, Presidex or dexmetomidine. It is not indicated for infusions greater than 24 hours. That's kind of what the label uh, um uh, says, um, but I think that we're seeing more literature suggesting that dexmetomidine can be used uh, effectively uh, w uh, for protracted period of times in uh, the ICU population. 
Now, I'm talking about neuromuscular blockade. Neuromuscular, neuromuscular blockade is what, basically the, the idea of paralysis. It is certainly reasonable for safe single-time use, and, and typically the situation that we would most commonly think of neuromuscular blockade being used, at least in the intensive care unit, for single-dose use is uh, the establishment of an airway through oral tracheal intubation. Complications can develop with long-term use to assist mechanical ventilation. Uh, there was a study done years ago out of San Francisco that said that the uh, complications of um, uh, a continued neuromuscular paralysis has a complication rate of about 43%. Uh, drug accumulate, uh, accumulation and organ dysfunction, and you can get this post-paralytic myopathy where once you stop the uh, paralytic agents, first of all, the patient can be uh, uh, much more paralyzed than we thought or basically overdosed and, and take up days to wake up, or even if they do wake up promptly, uh, they're uh, profoundly weak for days and days. We've gotten into this idea of uh, narcotic or of sedation holidays or interruption of sedation. Uh, Jesse Hall at the University of Chicago uh, showed um, years ago in the MICU that they had interrupted infusions daily, and they basically restarted half the previous infusion rate and then titrated upward. And this has become a very popular modality of sedation in all the intensive care units. And uh, we talked about uh, some of the work of uh, Dr. Wes Ely here at Vanderbilt and uh, some of the ABC trial that shows that spontaneous awake trials, particularly when covered with spontaneous is breathing trials really reduced um, patients stay on a mechanical ventilator. Um, so you have less drug, less days on ventilator, certainly less cost. Now if we can get back just for a second about some of the issues of uh, neuromuscular paralysis. Um, uh, succinylcholine or enectine is, is a, it's considered a depolarizing muscle relaxant. It actually works on the acetylcholine receptors and causes the muscles to basically uh, fasciculate and then, and then they relax. Uh, some of the relative contraindications uh, for the use of succinylcholine are hyperkalemia. Uh, patients who are paraplegia or quadriplegia and burn patients uh, are not patients you should be usually using um, uh, succinylcholine in. The idea behind uh, paras and quads is that with time they upregulate their acetylcholine receptors in their motor end plates. And so when uh, a... Uh, um, succinylcholine then binds at the motor end plate with a higher density of receptors, you get an exaggerated response, and that results in a hyperkalemic problem. Uh, in burns, you see a similar type thing, is that you see upregulation of the acetylcholine receptors all the way up and down the muscle fiber. So here comes succinylcholine. You've got this, this profound increased density of, or increased number of ACH receptors all the way up and down the muscle fiber. You get an exaggerated response, and you get hyperkalemia, hyperkalemic arrest. That's something that people will typically see on some... Um, uh, board exams uh, about when you do not want to be using these. Uh, a question that I get asked commonly is that when is it inappropriate to start using um, acetylcholine uh, in a burn patient? patient gets burned 10 minutes ago, they arrive at the emergency department. Um, I try to avoid it at all in burn patients. Uh, I, I see people use it frequently in burn patients who have been acutely burned and certainly I've we certainly tell people not to use it after, certainly after 24 hours. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I avoid it acutely is that it is not uncommon that once you get a burn patient in and you put a Foley catheter in, you will see um, red urine. And that red urine often is from um, muscle destruction. The, the muscle has been cooked. And much like a patient who's had a crush injury, when you have that um, muscle damage, that releases myoglobin. And if you've got myoglobin pigment in your urine, well, what else is released from muscle cells? That's correct, potassium. So you could have hyperkalemia, even though uh, you haven't had that upregulation yet of the ACH receptors from the succinylcholine. 
well, how do we do it in, in the burn unit is we, we try here, at least try to get a balanced, uh, we call balanced sedation with pain, sedation, and amnesia. And we'll start with IV boluses and convert to infusions. We try to find the patient's, quote, happy place. Um, uh, the use and maintenance of central lines is always very difficult uh, for these patients. Um, so what we'll try to do is convert the patient to long-acting oral agents, uh, something like methadone, uh, once we know where their happy place is. We'll try to do a modified drug interruption at least daily where we're cutting the drug doses in half, if not all the way, and trying to get the patient to wake up and have a spontaneous awake trial. And once the patient is uh, able to swallow, we'll convert them to things like MS cotton or oxycontin, again, long-acting agents. Uh, and then uh, once we've converted long-acting agents, then we can use the short-acting agents such as morphine or Lortab for breakthrough pain. Again, striving to use the right tool for the right job. If somebody's having pain, don't give them a sedative. If somebody needs sedation, don't give them a narcotic. Also do the right thing for the patient. Um, we actually use a lot of long-acting drugs in our unit, and the reason why is we've talked about non-procedural pain, that patients will have pain basically over a protracted period of time. They are burned, and they will have short-acting pain when it's a dressing change or a therapy. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hysteria uh, about the use of OxyContin and MS-Cotton. There were hospitals and doctors that say we are not going to use any Oxy or MS-Cotton at all. And I have to ask, is that a rational approach? Uh, NBC News called her uh, OxyContin uh, the next heroin. U.S. News said the poor man's heroin. Um, the Port St. Lucie News, new crack, and called it heroin. Um, uh, like in Kentucky, which is an area that we serve, uh, being in Nashville, uh, we had almost Oxyfest in Kentucky. U.S. Attorney, um, fam, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Famularo, F-A-M-U-L-A-R-O. Uh, he reported there has been 59 deaths from Oxycontin in eastern Kentucky at that point in time. David W. Jones, he said, I have no idea where these people are getting their facts. Um, um, but the entire state, there was apparently 27 Oxycodone-related deaths. Well, you know, people overdosing on any kind of narcotic is not a good thing. Um, but when you looked at the 27 deaths that could be found with the state medical examiners of Oxycodone-related deaths, two victims had Oxycodone and alcohol. 23 others who also died had multiple other drugs at the time of their autopsy, which included things like Dilaudid, fentanyl, cocaine, and heroin. Um, so the medical examiner said only two deaths had been due to the effects of Oxycodone. But that doesn't change people's perception and what they're afraid of is that physicians are afraid of using oxycodone because their, their patients are going to go out and abuse it. Uh, Forty drugs use oxycodone as the narcotic uh, uh, agent. Uh, Percocet has oxycodone, oxycontin. Um, uh, Percocet has about 2.5 to 10 milligrams per pill. Oxycontin can have anywhere from 10 to 160 milligrams, so certainly a lot more than Percocet. The time release is secondary to retardants, not the time release coding. So patients who overdose on this, what they'll do is they'll accidentally, and I'm saying this sarcastically, uh, will crush up the Oxycontin and snort it or inject it um, uh, into their arm. A lot of people really called for the outlaw of it. Um, reported some 58 deaths from Oxycontin. Uh, 3,700 children die from gunshot wounds a year. 16,000 people die from drunk drivers per year. About 43,000 and 90,000 people die from medical errors, and I think that number is even higher. So the idea that we're going to should outlaw a drug because a few people decided that they're going to abuse it, uh, they will abuse anything. They will snort gold paint. They will uh, um, um, do just about anything. Journal of the American Medical Association back in 2001 said between 40 and 50% of patients are in persistent pain. And... Um, 
what they found in that article was that uh, patients woefully have inadequate pain management among frail, old, and vulnerable population of, Amer- uh, of Americans. And what the result is is that doctors become paranoid of prescribing pain because they don't want to be sued. Uh, they don't want to be in trouble with the, with the state or the DEA, and they inadequately treat pain. Now, uh, pain in dying patients, the Western Journal of Medicine back in 2000 reported that 54% of patients had moderate to severe pain in the last week of life. So remember what we talked about with Albert Schweitzer saying that people fear pain more than they do death, but yet we've got some evidence that demonstrates that over half of people uh, in their last week of life are experiencing um, uh, pain. Uh, Albert Schweitzer went back, going back to that last quote, he said, we all must die, but that I can save him from days of torture. That is uh, what I feel as my great and ever new privilege. Pain is a more terrible Lord of mankind than even death itself. So when we're treating patients with pain, we need to be mindful of is that we are not the victim. The patient is our priority. Um, not all patients who are getting pain medicines are trying to abuse them. Uh, there is something called pseudo-addiction syndrome, which uh, is a topic for another day, but patients um, should, certainly should not be uh, writhing in pain. When we think about somebody who is, is being treated from heroin, a drug that we typically put them on is methadone. And the reason why they get put on methadone is that methadone has a very long uh, effect of half-life, of about 60 hours. And by using a drug that is long-acting, remember why we use drugs like methadone to treat something like heroin, is that we get a nice, stable dose of the drug. We don't get these peaks in the valleys. Because when we get these peaks in the doses, the patients have what associated with them. They have euphoria, and it is the euphoria that develops a psychological dependence on the drug, uh, and that is what people develop the maladaptive behavior. They, they, uh, they steal, they lose their job, they, cheat, they, they do horrible things to their family, and that's what's considered addiction. There's a difference between an addiction and a dependence. A diabetic is dependent on insulin, true or false? Of course, the answer is true. If you take away the insulin, the patient's going to get terribly ill and have an adverse effect from it. A patient who has heart disease or hypertension or heart failure, are they addicted to their beta blockers? Of course not. That sounds silly. But they're clearly dependent on their beta blocker. Their good health depends on the presence of that drug. And if we remove that drug, their body is going to have an adverse effect from removal of that drug. A patient who is a surgical oncology patient who has metastatic cancer or a patient who's recovering burns, are they addicted to their pain medicines? No, they are dependent on their pain medicines. And in that particular circumstance, that is not an inappropriate dependence. Addiction is a psychological, uh, basically, syndrome where a patient is, is, is uh, in undertaking maladaptive uh, behavior that is destructive, and they recognize it's destructive in order to acquire the drug. So if you're taking care of people who have chronic pain, recognition of the dependence nature of it versus the contrast of what an addiction is. A pseudo-addiction is where a patient has inadequate pain control and they're in pain, and they're suffering. So they go to their provider, their nurse practitioner, their physician, and they call their office and say, gee, doc, I am in pain. And, we, and the doc thinks the patient's malingering. 
and so they don't give them their pain medicine. The, do- the patient feels that the doctor is, is being insensitive. So the two forces, the healing relationship basically goes in polarity, and you have conflict. Let's go back to our heroin example. We said to get off of heroin, we use long-acting drugs because we're avoiding the peaks, which cause the euphoria, and that's euphoria which, which addicts will seek. If that is a model for using long-term agents, drugs like the OxyContins are very helpful because they provide a stable platform of analgesia to treat the non-procedural pain that these patients have all day. And then what we do is we look at the doses of Lortab that we typically would give uh, for um, their procedures or their dressings. Um, and we allow them X many doses of that. Now, if we have to give the patient rescue doses throughout the day, they're sitting there, they're watching television, they start having acute pain, and the nurse has to go in and give them a topping off dose. If they require more of these, more than three of these rescue doses in a given day, then we try to increase their basal narcotics. Uh, and, you know, their basal being their long acting. And typically, the long actings can be things like the methadone, the oxycontin, the uh, MS cotton. There are other non narcotic agents that we can use. Uh, which is we're not going to talk about here, but certainly things like Keralac, Clonidine, and so forth, um, um, Neurotin, Elevil for neuropathic types of pain. And uh, um, uh, we would talk about those. Uh, that's really kind of outside the scope of this one particular talk. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name's uh, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. My home webpage is www.burndoc.com. The podcast website is www.icrounds.com. Thank you and have a good day.